0: Hello and welcome to week six of Atheism for Lent. Um, if you've made it this far, congratulations, well done. If you're watching live, be sure to comment in the, the chat box, uh, how you're getting on, even actually maybe mentioning some of your favorite or least favorite uh, reflections or the ones that disturbed you the most and the least. And of course the ones that disturb you the most uh, are probably the the best ones. Um, and ask any questions you want. Uh, I was just saying before I kicked off officially that uh, I had a cigar earlier and not feeling 100%. So hopefully I will still be able to get across everything I want to get across. Um, this, oh, and if you're asking a question live, just put the, the letter Q or question before just to make sure that I see it. Otherwise I might miss it. Um, okay, so I guess... Last week, if I was to give a title to that, it would be God as Ground of Being, right? Uh, So, you know, what we've done, I'll just do, obviously, I always start off with a little brief overview of the journey. um, And we started off week one with the arguments for the existence of God, basic theism, week two, basic atheism. The negation, the affirmation and negation. Then week three, we got into really, again, the negation of negation. And it was the first week in which we saw how atheism theism can interweave in an interesting way. And that was with the mystics. God as this kind of supreme being beyond all conception, beyond all finding out. And how atheism becomes a type of purification process uh, for the mystics uh, to kind of bring us to this idea of um, beyond of predication, um, a, a, a kind of a reality that we cannot put qualifiers on, and that that idea of, like, saturation, right? And that's a very rich vein in a lot of religions, and you see it very much within the, the, the mystical tradition. So God is kind of the beyond of being. And after that, we then saw this kind of negation in which I suppose you could say the key line of week four was, and which I called the functionalist critique of religion, uh, was, is probably the, the phrase of Feuerbach's theology is anthropology. So there's a sense in which in week four, they all agreed with the mystics, right? The mystics basically said, every time we talk about God, we kind of talk about ourselves. Like God is beyond these predicates, right? We, we put projection onto God. So the next week, week four, was really the thinkers who really took that on because the mystics kind of say it, but that's not the important bit of theirs. That that's the bit that they kind of like push to one side in order to reflect on uh, the possibility of an, of an encounter with that which is beyond experience and beyond conception, right? So the mystics talk about this God beyond being, there within their work is this notion, yes, that that religion is a human construct, and that God, the signifier God, when we try to define that, we're actually saying something about ourselves. But again, that's the little bit of that's the waste bucket stuff for the mystics. But the week after that was when people said, no, 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 that that what you put in the waste bucket, that's the great stuff. That's the that's the stuff that's really. Um, Profound and interesting and useful, and actually this notion of the beyond of being is, you know, not, not, that, not that useful, not that profound. So what happened in week four is you see the beginning of a lot of really interesting political critique. Right? A really interesting psych- psychological critique. So, out of week four, you get a lot of contemporary political theory. Out of week four, you get psychoanalysis eventually birthing. Um, you get uh, phenomenology, a philosophy called phenomenology kind of birthing. So, very, very profound what was put in that waste bucket. Then, the week after that, which was just the week you've done, uh, were a group of people who, by and large, We're saying that yes, we take absolutely seriously this world and this life and our engagement with truth and with ethics and with society and that in that in that commitment we indirectly testify to or bear witness to some ground, some deeper ground of being which is actually a term that Paul Tillich really liked, which he takes from the German idealists. So God is ground of being, and you had that with Barnett Newman, with, the, with that zip, this notion almost that there's something uh, that we cannot put our finger on, that religion at its best orients us to, uh, that we need to be sensitive to, the, uh, I mentioned it the other day, the, the idea that like, you know, in the pursuit of truth, there is already an immersion in the truth. In the pursuit of beauty, we're already taken up in beauty. That there's something that grinds this anthropology. We can't quite put our finger on. So slightly different from the mystics who talk about what you might say is a supreme supra-being to last week, God is ground of being. And we finished with that very profound sermon of Paul Tillich's Uh, that I only put in very last minute actually because uh, Jay Baker asked me to record it for something he was doing and when I recorded it I thought oh this will be very good for atheism for Lent I had something else of Paul Tillich's in there uh, which you have in the supplemental reflection but I put in that sermon and it it was the perfect way I think of ending that week Uh, because what Tillich did in that and he, he wrote three books of sermons very worth getting I think one's called The Eternal Now I think Uh, one is called Shaking the Foundations, the other is called The New Being, I think those are the three books, but uh, I think this is from Shaking the Foundations. It's a beautiful sermon uh, that uh, talks about this ground of being in terms of the terms sin and grace, sin being an experience of alienation or separation, a feeling of not being connected with ourselves and with others and with our world. And grace being this kind of experience of overcoming of that separation. Um. Now, another thing I mentioned once, I think, but I want to think it's important here, is like every week kind of oscillates in a sense of who's inside and outside the church, right? So in the first week, Aquinas inside. The second week, they're all on the outside of like religion, um the th- next week, they're all kind of on the inside. The mystics pretty much, I mean, it all gets more complicated. The mystics are kind of on the inside, but on the, on the very edge of it, you know. And then the week after that is people who are kind of on the outside, mostly. Um, and then last week, kind of on the inside. This week is where we get very contemporary. And this week we get into the 20th and 21st century. Uh, late 20th, early 21st century. And this group uh, weaves together atheism and theism in another very interesting way, potentially even more closely interconnected than what we've seen before. And this bunch, I would say, dialectically, you couldn't say they're inside kind of the contemporary church structure, and you couldn't quite say they're outside of it. I would like to say they are, uh, I was thinking about it before I came on, um, I was going to say they're future church. They are on the inside of future church, a church that is not yet, right? So the, the church as an institution, a religion as an institution, goes through, what I would say is, it goes through quantitative changes, right? So there is a, an institution, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity, or whatever, there's a, a certain way of thinking about things. So in Christianity, a certain way of thinking about, say, the crucifixion, resurrection, whatever, and that position generates problems. It generates questions, and most of those questions can be answered within the framework. Right, so that's quantitative change, small. Quantitative changes, and that's what a lot of theology is and philosophy. It's a it's reconciling and answering questions that arise within a certain frame. But eventually, the questions become so rich and deep and difficult that a qualitative change happens, and the structure kind of like collapses into something else, and that's what a reformation is. A reformation is a point at which. The quantitative changes, it can no, this, the, the framework can no longer kind of like work out its problems and something radically new arises. But what arises when it's radically new simultaneously feels like it's in continuity with the past. So it's discontinuous. It's, uh, it reimagines a lot of the basic ideas, the basic concepts. So it's discontinuous and yet retroactively it seems continuous. And so the first example of this would be Paul uh, and the circumcision question, whether circumcision was necessary for salvation. Uh, that was very much a question and a problem and an issue. And then Paul comes along and now in retrospect, we don't think of it at, at all, right? But um, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wasn't part of atheism for Lent this year, he's been part of it for every year previous. Um, he talks about that, talks about uh, these these questions that arise that so fundamentally change things, and for him, the question was whether religion is necessary for salvation. Um, and uh, yeah, so this is kind of where we're what we're getting into now is that I think some of these thinkers, and these all have people are people who have very much influenced me. Uh, I would say, to be fair, to be honest, actually. Uh, Almost everybody you've encountered, at least 60% of the people you've encountered, have had some sort of influence on me, particularly from week three onwards, right? But this week you get into people who are very influential in my work, in the work of theology, in the project that, that we're doing together. Um, and I think that they are articulating something which requires a reformation. Right? And uh, that's the nature of power theology, is the idea that a reformation could occur that um, will lead us into a, a very different and hopefully profoundly enriching um, way of thinking about what faith is, which will eventually, like everything, like Phyllis Tickle talks about every 500 years, this happens. Eventually, you know, something else comes along. That's the dialectic process. So what is it that these thinkers are saying? If last week was all about God as ground of being, then I think how to kind of pull together the thinkers this week is to say that God is a groundless ground, right? God is a groundless ground of being. For each of these thinkers, and there's only four this week because two of them are over two days because they're longer bits, Each of these thinkers is interested in the idea that there is a certain openness uh, and a certain kind of like um, novelty and a certain antagonism at the heart of everything that is beautifully expressed in the notion of the crucified Christ and and in the teachings of Jesus that, that draws us into That basically religion is something that keeps us open to the future. There's something profoundly eschatological about it. Now, I'll just go through each of the four thinkers and try and put some flesh under what I'm saying. Maybe the first one to take is John Caputo. Uh, John Caputo was a big influence in my early work, and he is coming from what's called a post-structuralist position which I'm no longer as close to, but was definitely influential to me. And for him, his work is about saying that there is a promise of something in the world, right? There's a promise in words like democracy and justice that they haven't delivered. Every time we talk about democracy, there's something in which democracy is still to come. Democracy is is a promise. It is a fact. It's a historical fact. We can talk about democratic societies. But these democratic systems are never pure. There's always dimensions of them that are not democratic enough. And in one sense, the history of the development of civilization is the increasing of democracy. And Caputo is very sensitive following the philosopher Derrida. Very sensitive to never thinking that we have democracy, right? Always whenever someone says uh, they have democracy, you're gonna kill it, right? So the Buddha says when you meet a uh, Buddha say, when you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, right? <laughs> There's a sense of if you meet democracy, kill it. It's not democracy. As soon as you meet democracy, it's it's not. It is, but it's not. There's something in democracy that is still to come, and part of the life of faith is maintaining an openness to the promise of the to come of say democracy or justice or love that, that is, never, is never fully here. The kingdom of God is here and to come and in the fight for democracy there is this commitment to it. Now Paul Tillich is very committed to that kind of idea as well. There's a beautiful little book called My Search for Absolutes that I recommend. It's like uh, the last book of Tillich's. It was a series of set lectures he gave shortly before he died. And uh, it really touches on that, that idea. He would call it idolatry, is whenever you say, I have democracy, when I have justice, right? There's always something that is, is in that that's calling us. And the life of faith for Tillich is, in a way, living in that space between its existence and also the fact that it still has to be fought for and still has to be brought into existence. Uh, Very famously, Derrida made a distinction between the law and justice, which really captures this. Uh, The law is what you write down. The law is the historical instantiation of justice. So a, a, a just society is a society that has legal institutions that attempt to be just to the people but every time you write down laws there's a sense in which uh, they they feel to be completely just Uh, different circumstances different scenarios uh, mean that the law has to always be revised so to be in the legal system is to have a profound respect for everything that has gone before for precedent but also to have a deep sensitivity to what uh, is missing in precedent. And it's not just about throwing out the past, uh, but it's also not about being so wedded to it that nothing can change. The law is never just. And then Derrida says, however, without the law, justice would be so abstract that it would be meaningless almost like the mystical God, right? It's it's So abstract, right? No qualities, this this notion of justice would, would have no value. So the relationship between law and justice is a very complicated one. It's not that the law reflects justice. The law in a sense always fails to reflect justice, but the failure to reflect justice is what gives us a purchase on justice. It's what enables us to have a foothold in justice. So, that's Caputo. Caputo's work, and it's very rich, and I really recommend you delve into it. And the great thing about All Four Thinkers this week is that because we're in the contemporary world, there's so much of their stuff out there. Uh, For Caputo, there's not as much online, there still is, but uh, with Shizek and McGowan and even Boothby, there's loads online. But, you know, Caputo's got some wonderful books out there, Uh, one called The Weakness of God. There's a small book called The Folly of God, which is brilliant is a really beautiful memoir. I wrote the foreword to it actually, and I forget the name of it, but uh, it's a it's a really beautiful little memoir. Um, and also on religion, which is a beautiful book uh that I really recommend. So there's lots of, lots in Caputo, and Caputo he just he sees faith at its best as this openness to this eternal promise, but it's a kind of groundless ground because it's not substantive. You get the sense. Definitely in Tillich, that there's a substantive ground that we can never get, but that kind of we can stand solidly on. With Caputo, it's kind of like this eternal promise, this ethereal kind of like to come that, uh, that we never really grasp, but that grasps us. Um, he writes beautifully on love. And all of these thinkers write beautifully in love. So I'm going to come back to love in a second. But love is very, very central to this idea. For example, loving justice, right? For, for Caputo, he starts off his book on religion with this question that was in, I think, book 10 of the Confessions by Augustine, where Augustine says, what do I love when I love my God? And this is a beautiful line for Caputo because it captures all the complexity I've just talked about. Because he says, there's no, there's no denying that I love God. But what do I love when I love God? What am I saying? What is God? Who is God? Uh, is, is God a figment? Is God a to come? Is God, what is God? I don't know, but I, I can't deny that I love God. So in a similar way, one might say, I love justice. But at the same time, we should always say, but what do I love when I love justice? Because if I think justice is what is what I think, then I'm gonna become a tyrant, right? As Nietzsche says, be careful when you're fighting monsters not to become a monster, right? So if I, if I so am sure that I've got a handle on justice, I might be the monster. I might become the body. You know, that uh, great line. <laughs> Mitchell and Webb have a great sketch where these soldiers are fighting in Russia's Second World War, they're Nazis, and they gradually come to ask the question, like, are we the baddies? And uh, it's just a beautiful little sketch um, where you go like, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Like, sometimes we're the baddies. I actually just watched a movie last night which was really interesting called Black Crab. I don't know if you've seen it. I think it's a Norwegian movie. And I don't want to give too much away, but that notion of are we the baddies is, is key to uh, is is what that movie is kind of exploring so i actually recommend it i thought it was a good movie um so that's caputo uh and all of these thinkers are very much connected but caputo is kind of on his own a little bit and the other three thinkers are very together but they all do fit quite neatly but there's caputo and then boothby mcgowan and shizek are all very much of a piece right they um they're doing different things but they're very much in a similar line so who will we take next? Um, let's go for Shizek. Um, just briefly, Shizek, someone you've probably come across, so you heard me talk about. Uh, he is a, uh, you know, probably, he, he's probably, he's a very important philosopher and will probably be as important or more important after his death, I think. He's a philosopher who has had a significant impact not one not even two but three or four theoretical fields right which is not just he's written in various fields but he's actually made theoretical innovations within various fields within the fields of philosophy political theory um, and theology are the three that I can think of and and psychoanalysis even psychoanalytic theory so there's four you know the idea that you can have a, a major impact in four disciplines is very impressive um and for Shizek, uh, again, he has a very profound interest in Christianity. And for him, there is something about the divided God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? That idea of God is self-divided. God is experiencing the... the so in, in, you know, in Tillich, you have us experiencing alienation. So, So that's the whole thing about that sermon is sin is the experience of alienation. Grace is kind of the overcoming of that. In Shizek, you have the the idea, and I think this is um, uh, a movement uh, like uh, beyond Tillich, is that we don't overcome our alienation directly, but we realize that our alienation is woven into the absolute. So our alienation is a reflection of the alienation within all of reality and so we weirdly overcome or come to terms with our alienation through realizing that christ is alienated we 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 resonate with the crucified christ the wounded god there's something of that that is salvatory. and she's a you know that that's at the core of his philosophy which he sees play out in a variety of fields um and so again the idea is not that religion connects you with some substantive ground but rather it connects you with a groundlessness it connects you with and it helps you come to terms with your own groundedness your own alienation and we have to kind of build a religion of alienation and a religion oh, i'm sorry and a politics of alienation right um you know for, for someone like Shizek, uh, it's, we are always trying to overcome an experience of separation, an experience of alienation. But actually, that's the problem. The problem is we, we never can do that, and therefore we have to find somebody to blame. And actually what you want is you want a productively alienated system. So for Shizek, for, for example, capital. the problem with capitalism is not that it alienate, alienates, it's that it alienates in a way that is destructive. Right? Uh, So, for example in contemporary political and economic society we have to sacrifice and and workers sacrifice a huge amount to create value right so workers sacrifice a lot create value uh, but that value is often disproportionately uh kind of uh adopted and taken on appropriated by others right Um, the idea is not to get a society without sacrifice Going like, well, how do we have a society where we do all sacrifice? Sacrifice being central to being human, but a sacrifice that we all benefit from, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, all of these thinkers are not thinkers about overcoming alienation, but of embracing it uh, in a productive way. So, that's another way in which all of these are, are to a greater or lesser extent, connected. Right. So, so for Caputo, there's a restlessness that is part of being human, right? The promise of democracy to come. God is a question mark and a promise. And so you're always restless. And it's about finding a productive enjoyment of that restlessness. Same in Shizek. Um, and this is called drive in psychoanalysis. Drive, which is, not, is satisfied by being dissatisfied. That by never getting what it wants, by perpetually missing There's something in that that is profoundly painful and we are not in control of it, but can also be very powerful and liberating and be the very core of what it means to be human. An example I've used before is from Albert Camus, who talks about the difference between the um, conservative and the revolutionary. And for Camus, he says, well, the conservative is someone who wants to go back. They want to go back to some golden age. I mean, you, can be a, you can be a personal conservative and thinking about the golden age of your childhood or the golden age of that relationship you had. Or it might be political golden age. You look back to a time that was better and more noble. right? So you're dissatisfied, but you're fighting to get back to this past and then you'll be happy. right? Um, the revolutionary looks forward to some time where alienation separation is overcome they're looking forward so they're unhappy now but they're looking ahead and then camus talks about the rebel and the rebel is one who is dissatisfied as well but they enjoy their dissatisfaction so in on the movie on the waterfront uh one of the characters johnny is asked um what are you rebelling against by this woman who's working in a cafe, and he says, What do you got? Right? The rebel is the one who's like, Here, I'm gonna I'm dissatisfaction, I enjoy that. So they're fighting for something. But whereas the conservative wants to say, overcome the alienation in the past, and the revolutionary wants to overcome the alienation in the future, the rebel embraces the alienation, and so the, the kingdom of God is in the fight for the kingdom of God. Um connected with that is uh, Todd McGowan and Todd McGowan's work, uh, which profoundly delves into this experience of dissatisfaction, of alienation, of antagonism, and connects that with theology. And his work, he came from a very conservative religious background, actually. But when I read one of his books, um, the first book I read of his was uh, Enjoying What You Don't Have, which is a great title. And I invited him to wake for that because I read that book and I read Capitalism and Desire, another book of his. And I was like, oh, this is deeply theological work. But he doesn't, in those books, he doesn't really talk about theology really at all. Um, But I invited him to wake because I go, we're on the same page here in many ways. And um, uh, we chatted a lot. And I, I think he's going, yes, he sees there's a theological dimension to his work. This probably come out best in... Uh, his book on Hegel, which is called Emancipation After Hegel, uh, which is a fantastic book. Uh, but, there's, but it's funny because he, he, I think he basically rejected uh, Christianity because he went from a very conservative place, had nothing really to do with it, but actually in moving away from it, I think he's m- moved into the heart of it, right? And saying something profoundly theological. Um, and then connected to him is Richard Boothby, And uh, you may know I've interviewed him a few times. He came to Wake as well. And his work is fascinating. And his work as well is very much connected to this idea of an openness to an impossibility, to a groundlessness. And in his work, uh, he very carefully talks about how love is a type of orientation to a lack, to a groundlessness, to a dimension of the other that is not um, filled, but is kind of empty, right? So I'll talk a little bit about this and then I'll try and link it with everybody and then see if you've got any questions. But uh, the the French psychoanalytic notion of love, uh, if I boiled it down, love, is, in the words of Lacan, giving something you do not have to somebody who does not want it. Right? So Lacan was is, was brilliant at these very powerful little sayings that are very hard to unpick, but very, very rich, very rich veins. And so when Lacan talks about love as giving what you do not have to someone who doesn't really want it, uh, he's talking about how it, often we want to find someone who mirrors us who's like us uh, and who might complete us Uh, someone who has something that that we feel we're lacking Uh, but that's not really love as such nothing wrong with that that's part of friendships part of romantic relationships part of family relationships but but love orients itself to a dimension of lack within the other so whenever you love you desire the person and desire is an expression of lack, right? You desire what you do not have. So you have this desire, this lack in you. You meet somebody, they have this lack and this desire. And instead of trying to fill that, instead of trying to kind of give the answer to their lack, you make a, a shelter for that lack. You make a harbour in your being for their lack. And the miracle of love is, and they do that for you. And why do you not want it? Well, in a sense, that's not what we want. We want someone to make us whole and complete, right? <laughs> we don't want someone's lack, right? But but in love, there's an orientation to this dimension of the other that is lacking. And as I say, it's like this interesting two-way process. Now, if you, if you, I think in the, in the reflections it'll become clear because there's a, there's a seminar by Boothby that you'll be watching and he'll talk about this. But um, one way of saying this is, as an infant, one of our first experiences with our parents is an experience of their desire and not knowing what they want, trying to work out what they want and trying to work out what we mean to them, what makes us desirable to them or not desirable to them that question comes up you know it's not the first question the infant has the infant just has certain demands but at a certain point the infant gets connected to the other's desire to this enigmatic dimension that Freud called das Ding the thing the the, the, the cavernous black hole of the other's desire There's a question mark and that question still continues to animate us whenever we ask does the other person love us Am I doing the right job? What's expected of me? When we're often trying to work out, what does the other want? What's the other's desires? What's their intentions, right? There's that's this enigmatic dimension of the other that's seen in the the picture of the Mona Lisa, right? The Mona Lisa remains attractive to people, to art critics and others, because there's an enigmatic dimension of the smile, right? Almost like that, that that sting of the mother is in that painting what what is she thinking right um and in love we orient ourselves to that dimension we're interested in what is that, that that the other desires what makes me desirable to them or not desirable to them we're oriented to that dimension of them and them to us but the lacanian kind of trick there is of course we do not know what we desire the other doesn't know what they desire that's a kind of black box to us too there's a type of lack and Boothby beautifully says that a religion at its best potentially is a religion of love and a religion of love isn't just a sappy thing of oh you know you like people or whatever but a religion of love is a religion that says that we have to be eternally open to the dimension of the other that is threatening and desirous. That dimension of the unknowing jouissance of the other, their desire, their enjoyment, what makes the other tick. People are, people are threatening and dangerous to us often. Often the people here are most familiar, right? There's something dangerous about the people we love because, and we want them to be familiar. We love people to be familiar. We want people to be like us. But there's always a dimension in which the other might do something completely unexpected. And we've all encountered that. Something they've had, they have an affair, or we have an affair, or whatever. And things happen and you're it completely blows up. The familiar becomes completely alien. And suddenly you encounter the dasting of the other. This enigmatic question mark about their desire. You thought they were familiar. You thought you knew who they were and what they were. And then you encounter the dasting, this horrifying Experience that is also at another time is exactly the thing that draws you to them. Now you hate them, right? Love and hate, that, that terror. That a religion of love that says, Love your enemy. And, it, and what Boothby does is he loves this phrase, Love your enemy. Uh, because in loving your enemy, this is an impossible injunction to remain open to this dimension of the other and to open yourself up to that so it's a it's a very very dangerous thing to do um i'm at the moment producing a a documentary it's a four-part documentary we're coming to the end of it um and it's a four-part documentary by tammy Fay baker and the reason why we wanted to make this documentary and we approached eventually we got the budget together so it'll be coming out hopefully this year we're going to be trying to sell it in the next two months Um, is that Tammy Faye Baker I think is a great contemporary example of someone who couldn't help but be open to the other and to give of her nothing her vulnerability right there's a sense in which you watch her behind all the makeup the the shield of her makeup there's this vulnerability She couldn't kind of help herself, but be vulnerable to the other, and to be open to that unknown dimension in the other. So I don't know if I talked about this before, so forgive me if I did, but there's numerous times in her life where when people attacked her and mocked her, she directly engaged with those people in a loving way, uh, buying them something, a present, sending them a card, giving them a call, engaging with them. And it was probably partly the death of her uh, to be that open. Whereas Jim Baker, you know, he kind of like he when he, he was ridiculed and mocked, he closed down. He became a fortress. Somehow, Tammy was able to keep being open to the other. So, for Richard Boothby, he says that interestingly, if you say to love God is to love your neighbor and to love your enemy, he says it is in a sense to say that the highest, what faith at its best is, is helping us remain open to and sensitive to that enigmatic dimension of the other. Now, I think there's a whole pile of good things that come from that, but I won't even get into why I think that's good, because I don't think we should do it because it's good, because that's economic, right? Uh, it doesn't matter if it's good or not. Um, it's. Uh, Uh, because I think religion is a gift it's not an economy so it's not you don't do it because it works but I do think it works (laughs) Um, but it's very very difficult Um, I think all of us in our lives can of course all of us in our lives can point to times when we have loved the other the neighbor the enemy where there's times where we've been open and vulnerable and we've been open to that dimension of the other but probably only for small parts of our lives Time here, a time there, and maybe that was twenty years ago. Um, the the call of faith, I think, is an invitation to try to, for as long as we live, be open to the other, and to be vulnerable, with all of the dangers that that involves, um, with also having to have sense. And having to protect oneself as well but even when you have to protect yourself from someone to somehow still try to and I think actually in divorce this is probably an area where it's most difficult Um, I've never been divorced or anything but for my friends who have been divorced I think I see that there are these times for both parties when it takes an incredible amount of work uh, it takes an incredible amount of work to tr- to try to be open to, to understand, or not even understand, but to not be closed off to the, the other whenever their desire is, is so threatening and so difficult. And so, yeah, I think I think in that, uh, I suppose in the moment of a start of a relationship, that's where we feel the good part of loving the other. <laughs> and in end of a relationship that's where we really encounter the difficulties and of course we have to be uh you know gentle with ourselves and other people those are the most difficult times in our lives but somehow that's what love love of your neighbor and love of your enemy is about and then if that is the the heart of faith then loving your neighbor is loving god right so that's that's what boothby's doing in a really powerful way um and that's why I'm saying is like, this is where atheism and theism really mix because in one way you go, where's God in all of this? And Bonhoeffer talked about this, like kind of wanted to give up the word God for a long time, just give it, and just love. And Bonhoeffer kind of intuited this, but he was intuiting this in prison and he was executed. But he was envisaging a theology of love, um, a radical theology of love. And I think that's what unifies all of these thinkers this week. They're all thinkers on love, Christianity and love.